June 17, 1972. Nine o'clock, Saturday morning, early for the telephone. Woodward fumbled for the receiver and snapped away. The city editor of the Washington Post was on the line. Five men had been arrested earlier that morning in a burglary at Democratic headquarters, carrying photographic equipment and electronic gear. Could he come in? Woodward had worked for the Post for only nine months and was always looking for a good Saturday assignment. But this didn't sound like one. A burglary at the local Democratic headquarters was too much like most of what he'd been doing. Investigative pieces on unsanitary restaurants and small-time police corruption. Woodward had hoped he'd broken out of that. He'd just finished a series of stories on the attempted assassination of Alabama Governor George Wallace. Now, it seemed, he was back in the same old slot. Woodward left his one-room apartment in downtown Washington and walked the six blocks to the post. The newspaper's mammoth newsroom, over 150 square feet with rows of brightly coloured desks sat on an acre of sound-absorbing carpet, is usually quiet on a Saturday morning. Saturday is a day for long lunches, catching up on work, reading the Sunday supplements. As Woodward stopped to pick up his mail and telephone messages at the front of the newsroom, he noticed unusual activity around the city desk. He checked in with the city editor and learned with surprise that the burglars had not broken into the small local Democratic Party office, but the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the Watergate office apartment hotel complex. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Today, I'm being joined by a friend of One Heat Minute Productions and someone who is really, you know, the lead-off journalist and political editor uh, of the show. And so it's with my great, my great pleasure um, and, and in assembling the crew of this particular show, um, uh, the A and B teams, as we'll probably hear about um, as our journo teams come in uh, and journo representatives come in on the show, um, it's with great pleasure that I welcome J.R. Hennessy back to another one, uh, Heat Minute production, but more importantly, one that he is by far and away the expert. <laughs> J.R., welcome to All the President's Minutes. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me and for saying such kind things about my position on the A team of One Heat Minutes production. Well, you 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 are. You know, this is a movie that um, that I call the kind of nexus between history and politics and journalism and filmmaking, and uh, at a particularly important time internationally for the international ramifications of the American community, um, but. Uh, I think it's kind of impossible um, to not wrestle with this movie. I think in different ways uh, yep. than than say something like Heat, because it just it it has a a specificity, a time, a place, and also has become like this cultural shorthand where you say a word like Watergate and people know what it means. It's it's political tampering and political fuckery and weird, uh, and and finally in an American context, accountability for that stuff on a, on a, on a very big scale. Um, and then what I think we're going to also dig into is what people hoped would be this singular blemish, um, that people would learn from in history. Ultimately, now that we look back on it in 2019 and especially or in 2019 and now in 2020, um, recording this the 2nd of January, 2020 Australian time, um, it kind of feels quaint even though it feels epic and 
ginormous in the st- in the scope of this film. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it's a interesting sort of time capsule of a period, and obviously, it's very easy to sort of universalize its message and its sort of um, uh, its sort of its ideals to the to the current era. It's it's interesting how you can sort of look at it um, as sort of his, both historical object that's very very bound to its time, very very bound to this particular, as you say, nexus of of, of history and. Um, uh, cinema and, and and sort of just like these bigger political ideals, um, but the obvious connections between then and sort of the current political moment, but also like the limitations of applying um, the uh, the um, all the presidents met all the Watergate sort of um, context to now and. W- why that doesn't work yes. in some circumstances. So it's a really interesting sort of object in that sense. Yeah, it's that old thing about um, that technology ruins action movies and detective movies. So everything wants to be yearns to be a throwback. Um, you know, that's why we love detective films like Chinatown and things like that because you can't you can't just track someone on the computer and you can't like use GPS to find them and you can't, you know, and, and with something like, you know, what I think we'll come to talk about later when, you know, you read something like, um, uh, Edward Snowden's latest book, uh, uh, permanent record, you know, when you find out that the NSA can listen to your phone conversations, <laughs> um, yeah, it's like some of this, some of this stuff just seems, you know, out of this world and, and, and very outmoded. But I think what, what is great about it is it, uh, what, what I love about it is that the, the, there's such a wrestle for morality in this movie. Like, like you said, there's some great universal messages. There's great nexus. It's a great time capsule. Um, but I think the things that will continue to resonate for, for us as we, as we sort of dive into it um, is morality. So, Without further ado, because I think we've got to get to the minute, um, I'm mindful that in the first episode of the show, I think Bilger and I took about 25 minutes to get to the first minute, um, and and as with all things, um, I appreciate JR being one of the lead-off men, as was Bilger, um, because uh, the opening minutes of um, su- such movies often deal with credits and are pretty boring um, for the large uh, majority of it, so we're going to watch this minute together now, you guys are going to do your thing, you're going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and start unpacking it. And starting uh, to cut through some of those themes that we were just about to talk about. Across the world, across the Atlantic Ocean, arriving almost exactly, exactly as scheduled at 9.30 in the Capitol Plaza so that he can go up the steps of the House of Representatives, go into the chamber and address the members of the House and the Senate, the Supreme Court, the Diplomatic Corps of Washington, all of whom are inside waiting for him in the chamber of the House of Representatives. the President of the United States. And the President, accompanied by the escort committee, comes down the central aisle, approaching the podium, greets members of his cabinet and those who are waiting to be confirmed as members of his cabinet as he reaches the rostrum. He shakes hands with the speaker, Carl Albert, Happy President, smiling. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, President Nixon. 
There we have him, the big man himself. <laughs> the big man. That's such an uh, that's an Australianism that is not used enough in current political discussions internationally. The big man, here he comes. Here he comes yep. to the stage. The man himself. Uh, yeah. No. Um, uh, I think the. I mean, this is this is obviously going off on a on a tangent almost immediately, but um, it's interesting that they sort of kick off showing Nixon, and you see him. He's the sort of the locus of the film, but he's obviously basically never seen again. Never um, again. And we never see again. Him in this not, glory no. moment. It's a glory moment. Yeah, you, you see the glory moment of him sort of loving it as president, entering the House of Representatives to thunderous applause. Um, and then not only do you never see him again, you basically never see his inner circle or any of the people who are sort of accused of this enormous conspiracy are uh, sort of never seen again. So everything is sort of tinkering away at the edges woodward and bernstein are sort of digging into this vast conspiracy but never being able to sort of get their heads around it and in fact by the very end of the film they still haven't really gotten their heads around it although we as the viewer kind of know what's coming next um but uh yeah no it's just that it's a it's a good minute because we get to see who the the film is really about and who is in many ways you know the main character of the film despite the fact that he is not um directly part of it for the duration of the, the film going it's a, forward. It's a good choice, right? Because it's one of those things that you think about modern, uh, so just, just rewinding. Cause I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to miss folks who aren't as familiar with the, the release of this film. So all the president's men, um, all the president's men is released in 1976. And, the book is written, like the book by Burns, Woodward and Bernstein is is written and released only four years earlier. Like it's everything is everything has happened um, that we've seen. You know, it, it comes in tandem with another book called The Final Days. But even before they'd written the book, as the story is being written, Robert Redford, as an American producer, hears that they're write, they're going to write a book. They're going to basically assemble everything, and start saying, hey, I want to make this movie with you guys. And so you've got to imagine that it's like, uh, and, and the most recent time that I can think of it happening is kind of the the flood of sort of post-9-11, 9-11 movies, like who was going to rush to make the first movie that was actually about the events of 9-11 as opposed to being inspired or being like irrevocably touched by um, the events of 9-11 in the way that they do that. Um, and so... He is the elephant in the room, and it makes both an artistic choice to have him right up front, but it's also like, like it would be weird. It's not. There are other movies that come later that like get want to get you swarmed with Nixon, and, and this movie is so intent on focusing on these two guys and how. Really, for the audience, we kind of know like that's the end game. Even now, when you're watching it, this is a Watergate film, and that automatically is synonymous with Nixon. But I think you, you're spot on with like. It brings it to you right up front. Then it's just like, no, these guys had no idea that it had anything to do with Nixon. It's just kind of nice that this moment that we get to share together and examine is like, this is them showing this guy arrive out of the sky and like he's like this superior being. He walks in, he's jovial. He gets this resounding um, resounding applause and resounding sort of uh, confidence that's in that room. And then he just disappears. And it's just so beautiful that we're just working our way back to him. 
and he's only seen, you know, we see this front and center on TV, but we only kind of see him half being talked about, half doing interviews, half in the, in the background of newsrooms later. He's just, he's around, but we're just dancing around his name. We're always saying White House, we're rarely saying President Nixon, or if we are and we're inferring connections to other people, like you said, at the culmination of this movie, you never feel at at that moment like they're going to say, "Hey, we actually found out that he's culpable. He's responsible. He's here." So it's it's really cool. It's it's yeah. actually, it's it's such a choice because it's like you can tell they're like at the time that they make this in seventy six. It's so omnipresent in the culture that they're like, uh, wouldn't it feel like it's banging banging it over the head if we saw Nixon and you know Bill Goldman, uh, William Goldman, the Oscar winning screen screenwriter, said that he was really struggling to wrangle this whole script out of the book because he kind of was like he felt like the movie was in the first half of the book and it was nowhere else and so it's like if you cast nixon it just opens too many doors there's no resolution it feels too big but if you focus on these guys actually getting to that point where it's like an avalanche and everything's gonna go downhill from here i think that that's kind of that that sort of beautiful that beautiful poetic perfect spot yeah and it's what I'm speaking to your point that you just raised before about this movie kind of being made basically in the thick of it. Um, as you yes. say, the, it, it was they planned it. Redford was, had an inkling it was going to be a good movie sort of while the book was being written, blah, 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 blah. blah. Um, but it's interesting that they made this film not really having any sense of what the broader at long-term cultural yes. impact of Watergate was. Or yes. like, obviously now it's Watergate is, is shorthand for political conspiracies and scandals of this sort of scale, and we sort of affix that um, gate suffix to you know basically anything um, because it is our universal across the Western world understanding of what um, of a scandal. But when this movie was uh, made, it wasn't. It was definitely not that ingrained, um, and it definitely yes. they had didn't have that long-term sense of what the fall of Nixon actually meant for the culture yes. because they hadn't really even gotten their head around what Nixon's presidency or Nixon's election meant for the US, for the American culture. They didn't have that kind of understanding of, A, like what the social forces were that compelled him to be elected in the first place, let alone, um, you know, the the uh, the downfall and the, the creeping corruption and, sort of what it would do to the American character going forward. So it's obviously it, it, it's interesting that it speaks to all these lessons and these bigger historical currents around journalism, around politics. But uh, you've got to remember that like this is filmed and released sort of like in the thick of it before they can really understand what it actually meant in a big sense. Yeah. Uh, you know about, you know about this. And I think we talk about it in a, like when historians talk about it in the context of like primary and secondary sources, right? Things that happen yep. at the time um, versus after like, and yep. secondary meaning that reflection, exactly what you talked about of like actually being able to contextualize and go, shit, what does this mean for the broader culture? Were there things yep. that Nixon did that were great? And like, there is a litany, like, that whole period, the Nixon era, you know, the JFK era, into the Johnson era, and then into the Nixon, like all of that entire era is so dutifully and richly documented from like Gonzo, you know, campaigning from Hunter S. Thompson yeah. um, to great stuff, you know, um, uh, from, from across the pond in Britain with like Fred Emery's great Watergate book, which is sort of looking back from a bit of an outsider and slightly more objective perspective. And obviously then the first person, um, Woodward and Bernstein at the coalface here. And so I, 
it kind of freaks me out a little bit when I think about it in that this is this film has that weird you know near primary level source like the balls to make this movie about this topic so close to it and sort of underscore the emphasis of of what it is and and like you said it it doesn't seem like it has any clue of how prophetic this event is going to be in modern political culture like throughout the western world but it kind of all it does because it just takes it down to the process like it goes back to that very yeah smart detective-ish kind of journalistic instinctive process of like facts are facts and dealing with people's culpability because of you know how they benefited from doing the things that they did and so i i love to i love the weird like questions that you have when you're like what even is this? You know, like, yeah. yes, it's a fictional movie. Yes, it is. But it's like when you dig behind the production of like Redford being in these guys' ears while they're writing the book, it starts to get a bit squirrely. Yeah, totally. Um, and the I was when I was uh, uh, reviewing it, because I, I haven't actually I hadn't actually watched it in a, a number of years before I revisited it to um, for the podcast. Um, and the thing that sort of came to mind. As an example of something contemporary, and I love, uh, obviously... your, I love your current uh, Twitter banner picture. By the way, it's just it's, <laughs> it's, it's 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 also it's also speaking to modern Australian political uh, uh, frustrations, um, and and very topical for what we're talking about in this podcast. It is actually, I think I might have to tweet it. I'll tweet it from the older President's Minutes podcast account. Uh, which is a a beautiful picture of uh, old Dickie Nixon um, stomping <laughs> in his uh, very nice shoes along wet sands on a beach. Uh, yeah. It's just it's superb. Uh, you, I actually completely forgot that I had that there because I think it's been my my head of picture for probably three or four years. It's but good. anyway, um, no. But the thing that came that came to mind while I was watching it as an example, you brought up nine eleven films. Yes, um, as an example of sort of like you know it, it wasn't very long after the event itself that the cinematic angles were being wrangled. Mm. Um, but the one that I thought of was The Social Network with yeah. uh, with Zuckerberg. Because when you think about it, it's very similar sort of context. Like, uh, it came out in 2010. Um, Facebook had only been available to the public for three or four, four years, like, to the broader public outside of universities um, for, like, four years at that point. Yes. Very, very new. Again, another, another film where we didn't um, sort of comprehend the broader problem or the broader political ramifications of something like facebook and you look back at the social network and you go oh it's a very good film and it remains very good um but it's almost quaint in its sort of um yes understanding of facebook right it's sort of it's it's um conclusion is facebook is a little bit dodgy because mark zuckerberg is a bit of a weird guy <laughs> that's <laughs> yes. sort of like the that's um, the extent of it and then but now obviously looking back at it now we're like wow this Obviously, the political ramifications of Facebook as a platform have been far more substantial than, I mean, and you can't blame um, Aaron Sorkin and David Fincher for not getting it because who who could possibly have predicted that? No. Um, and you compare that with something like All the President's Men, um, which has taken a, took a very different angle, didn't focus on the, obviously, the, the thing at the core of it, like the social network did with Facebook. It spoke more to the process of the people on the outside looking in. Um, and it has remained a little bit more um, timeless because it has sort of relied on those um, focusing on journalism, focusing on journalism as a craft and a trade 
um, and sort of the pursuit of truth in, in war in a more general sense. Um, and as a result, it, it is more timeless in the way that it's it, it's sort of lessons and its truths. Um, that was just sort of that that immediately came to mind in my no, way. No, it's so funny. Like it, it's actually perfect that in the second episode we talk about this because the social network is going to get brought up again and again. And yeah. I think the reason that it is and it's such a spot on case for for absolutely that. Like you are dealing with you are dealing with a topic that at the time people were like, why the hell do we need the Facebook movie? Like why yeah. why would we possibly need it in two thousand and ten? And I think in now to, to in twenty twenty ten years later. Um, nearly 11 years later, we're going to look at it and go, oh no, this is an essential movie. It needs to be made. And in fact, it could have been vastly more nefarious, you know, yeah. like around the ramifications of its existence than, than it ultimately played out to be. But it's important nonetheless. The reason that I say that it's great that we bring it up now is because um, William Goldman, Bill Goldman, is a famous, not only a famous screenwriter, a famous and influential film culture thinker and writer um, and just one of the most influential um, he crossed lines that weren't allowed to be crossed before in that he was an Oscar winning screenwriter and then he would go and write for different magazine publications about Hollywood he would write uh, he and they've been collected into books like the big picture and um, uh, you know um, what books like what lies did I tell and he, he not only sort of famously sort of understood how Hollywood worked and, and did those sort of outside-in examinations, but he took other screenwriters and filmmakers under his wing. Two of those people who are obsessed with Bill Goldman's other Oscar-winning screenplay, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, are David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin. Mm. And they developed a connection because their favorite movies of all time are Bill Goldman's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And both of them were meant like mentees, if you like, of Bill Goldman. So it's like the social network and all the president's men connection, the social network would not exist without Bill Goldman, <laughs> who wrote um, the screenplay for all the president's men. But that's probably Butch Cassidy and Sun largely Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid as opposed to that. But I think that those guys definitely would have looked at Bill's work and been thinking about the social network's the, the way to do the social network is yeah. leaning into that that process. And I think you hit it right on the head. It's like when you're in the midst of the weirdness, I guess, of Mark Zuckerberg as Jesse Eisenberg playing him, the strength of the social network, it, 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 now when you reflect on it 10 years later, it doesn't hold up. Where it holds up in an outstanding way is when you look at the people that it cast out of Zuckerberg's inner circle. Yeah. So when you look at Eduardo Severin, so played by Andrew Garfield, probably ultimately his best performance. So you look at Arnie Hammers, um, a famous performance of the Twins. When you look at those people who are cast out of his circle for those reasons, you know, I, I think that that's where you watch the social network soar because they are literally outside of looking in at this guy that they thought that they knew and they didn't. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I think it's 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 definitely one of those ones. Again, it's a squirrely weird thing like the you know Ben. Mesrich's book, which is written around the same time, is like picked up immediately. Sorkin adapts it. Finch is connected to do it. It comes out right on time. You know, it's huge. Like it's a huge hit. It's um, critically acclaimed. Awards um, 
slighted by terrible choices at the Oscars, but we don't have to go down that path. Um, <laughs> we're not going to go down that path. But it's um, yeah, it's 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 got some enduring power, even though, like you said, we, we come back and we go quaint compared to like Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah, that's that's the elephant in the room. Anyway, they should they should do a sequel that addresses that, that brings <laughs> it back. I think that would be cool, but I don't know. Um, anyway, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what. Maybe they just change it to social network. They drop the the like they just oh, yeah. drop the the like they you know like Justin Timberlake's um, douchebag. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> What's sure. his name? Sean. Oh, what was that guy's name? Who cares? Uh, Sean Parker. Sean Parker. There you go. The guy who did Napster. Um. Yeah. But yeah. So maybe it'll come back as social network. I don't know. If if anyone could do it, I would. I'd, I'd give it a watch if Fincher was back. Back if he, out if of, he did uh, it again. Back out of Netflix. In conversation, sort of a dialogue with the original film, with what we know now, could be cool. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. if he's listening, yeah. I'd watch it. You've got, you've got two viewers here, Listen, two guarantees, bums in seats, bums in seats at a cinema. If David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin are listening as fans of Bill Goldman, who is the Oscar-winning screenwriter of All the President's Men, then much respect um, to both of you. And yes, we'd love to. We'd love to see that. I'll, I'll, I'll hunt, yeah, Netflix, give him some money. Come on, you got oh, some extra cash, Netflix. Absolutely. Sort that out. Um, you are, and this is what I'm deeply fascinated to talk to you about, is like in a modern context, we hold up. And I think in a previous episode with Bill Iberio, I talked a little bit about Lowell Bergman and the insider story that is the basis of Michael Mann's film, The Insider, where Jeffrey Wigan, played by Russell Crowe, brings the nefarious activities of the tobacco industry into the harsh light of day, which is that, hey, these products kill you, and yes, they are addictive, and yes, the people who are making them know that, and they don't care. And we talked a little bit about that as, uh, uh, and and Al Pacino's character, um, based off of Lowell Bergman, who was um, sort of a radical, um, San Francisco-based sort of radical journo um, in in the 60s, around the time um, uh, that All the President's Men was based, and then sort of the peak of journalism before, you know, as, as Michael Mann's film posits in 99, the peak of journalism before corporate takeover is kind of 99. And so I'm just interested in you as a journalist and the impact of this film as just as a text for journos. Like, is this something that, you know, when you are studying to be a journalist or you are a current practicing journalist that very green journos come in and expect they're going to get a Woodward and Bernstein thing? Or is this something that is so quaint and outmoded in a modern high-speed, um, you know, digital um, newsroom that um, it's kind of like, it's it's great to look at and it's something you wish you had the capacity to have, you know, to do, but it's just not, it's just not possible in the world that we live in? Um, well, the first thing that I would kind of say is that it does have a sort of timeless quality in as much as that it is quite banal in the way that it does address and cover journalism, right? Yes. Um, and I compare it with something like, um, you, there, okay, there are two films recently that I would say you can compare this one to, um, both of which kind of fall into the same trap, one more than the other, um, which would be Spotlight and The Post. Yes. Um, and these, the, the Post, I think, is the extreme example of what happens when you have a film that sort of valorizes journalists too much. So, can I ask you a hypothetical question? Oh, dear, I don't like hypothetical questions. Well, I don't think you're going to like the real one either. Do you have the papers? 
yes. right? It's a it, it's sort of like a it's a it comes from the perspective. If you I think if you go into a film producing a, a film or, or whatever it might be from the perspective of like journalists are amazing and what they do is essential and you sort of you get all caught up in the fourth estate and all these sort of like mystical notions of like the journalist is sort of this almost priestly class yes. then you end up with something like the post which i don't think is a particularly good movie um and and i would i would have to agree it is a movie that i have a lot of conflicting feelings about being such an epic all the president's men fan I just feel like it is it's it's painted with a different kind of brush and style an over dramatic yeah over emotional style I to yeah. your point that I just it if I found it tremendously grating despite like some of the best actors in the world being in it and some of the Absolutely. best people yeah. in the world producing it <laughs> it's just yeah. one of those things Yep. Uh, and then you can look at one which doesn't isn't it's nowhere near as guilty of these crimes which is um spotlight I know there's things you cannot tell me. But I also know there's a story here, and I think everybody will hear about it. Do you think your paper has the resources to take that on? I do. Do you? The Boston priest molested kids in six different parishes over the last 30 years. The church found out about it and did nothing. We haven't committed any long-term investigative resources to the case. No, we haven't. And that's the kind of thing your team would do. Spotlight, yes. which is also like a, I think a really, really great film. Um, but it's interesting to compare something like Spotlight to All the President's Men, um, which I'll go out on the limb and say to you and for the audience, those like essential. There, there, there's some great stuff in Spotlight, and I think it does, <clears throat> it does definitely warrant a rewatch, and it was was critically acclaimed for all the right reasons. But as far as like pure craft, uh, I just think it doesn't even come close. To, to no, I, I agree. I agree. But it's a in terms of just like comparing how it covers journalism, like Absolutely. what its approach to Absolutely. journalism. Absolutely, agree. Agree. Um, it's much more like, frills, and like they're just there doing stuff, boring stuff, like yeah. driving places and interviewing people that don't want to talk, and some people who want to talk too much, and you yeah. have to doubt them, and um, or like at least have that practicing cynicism of yeah, totally. What is what is this person getting out of this conversation? Um, but all the president's men, so sort of back to your original question, um, all the president's men sort of has this, despite the fact he gets talked about as this film that's, you know, all about, um, you know, journalism and the truth and all this stuff, it's very, very no frills in its approach to journalism as sort of like a trade or a craft, right? Yes. Um, you know, there's the, the scene that everyone sort of comes back to when they're talking about it. Obviously, you're going to get to this in a lot of episodes later down the track. But the the one where it's just literally, I think it's about seven minutes long, and it's just um, Woodward sort of on the phone writing notes on his um, papers. He's trying to get his head around this uh, check, this money, right? Yes. Um, and it's literally, and I read a really interesting piece about it, which is just about the fact that the, every time they have that um, mid-shot of um, – Woodward, everything in the background is in focus. Every all the other journalists sort of like going about their day and um, doing their own little sort of tableaus or pantomimes in the background of you know being journalists. Yes. Um, in a way that's a lot more compelling than other films <laughs> uh, try to do that, like shooting a newsroom and they try to make it seem like a, this bustling sort of space where people are you know possibly making history in their own way in their own booths or whatever. Whereas this one is very like utilitarian, right? Yeah. There's um. 
and the way you know the the um the close camera shots of um Woodward like writing down in shorthand his notes on the thing and circling stuff as people <laughs> talk to him. Yes. Um, and you know it it, it sounds like that kind of thing, um, is although sort of dramatized a lot closer to the experience of sort of just being a journalist and speaking to people and just trying to get your head around basic facts. Like not even the like he's not coming to any great revelations for the majority of that scene. He's sort of just wrapping his head around what people are telling him. He's listening and trying to get his head around just a really, really basic idea of the story. Yeah, just um, he's 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 on background. He's just backgrounding yeah, exactly. someone. Like, tell me about this guy. Yeah. What did he do there? What were his duties? Yeah. yeah. And whereas, um, if you look at something like a Spotlight, every time they're doing journalism or whatever, and this is sort of uh, a lot of contemporary films or other films of the era or whatever that took talk about journalism um it's sort of like an escalating series of revelations yes like everything they're doing is sort of in service of a great revelation that sort of propels the plot forward this is kind of that but it's kind of just this slow unpicking and there's a lot of that and you get it in sort of like these very lengthy sort of editorial discussions as they sort of argue amongst themselves about how this should be covered or what angle they're supposed to take or whether they should be speaking to this person or, or whatever, or whether what they're talking about can actually run on the front page and whether it's been properly substantiated. This feels like a lot realer, even though now, um, you know, I, obviously the digital journalism space is so vastly different. Um, to what it was back then. The There's distance, these, there are these the distance between that conversation and a post, a digital post versus a how many inches is this going to get on the front page is a whole different conversation. But I think what's that's cool, a whole different conversation. That's a whole different conversation. But what's cool in Spotlight, and we'll give this credit to Tom McCarthy, is that like it's one thing I really loved. And it's like the underrated MVP of the whole Spotlight movie is Lee Schreiber playing Marty Barron. Yep as the editor who just kind of says, I think you should dig here and seems to have this unwavering calm and, and objective middle distance, I suppose that you would imagine a great editor would have. I just kind of not giving a shit about your emotional investment in the story rather than what are the actual facts of this thing? I understand that there's power and understand what you're saying to me and understand the emotion, but like, unless we are so clinical and so powerful and we execute so perfectly, we're going to fail. And I really did appreciate that in here. And obviously in President's Man, the layers of that are all there. They're writ large in everything that we're doing. And so, and I think it's even more important is that like hierarchically, just coming back to our minute, is we see the president arrive, we see him go to the, we see him go to Congress, we see him get this standing ovation. And then hierarchically, we, we're we're piecing together just like Woodward is over the phone, like what the hierarchical structure is of Nixon's inner circle. But we know deeply hierarchically the newsroom of the post way more. Yep. Like we know the we know everyone. We know who we know who collects Bernstein's messages and who he bums cigarettes off at the desk. Like we know all those things way in, in much more detail, in crisp detail than yep. we do about Nixon's stuff. And other than here he is. He's the bad guy. He's the reveal. He's the big reveal in the minute that we're talking about. Here he is coming down from the clouds right at the beginning, but we know everything yeah. else. It's, it's, I read a really interesting um, essay a long time ago about all the, all the president's man and journalism and things like that. And obviously there's this obvious visual contrast 
um, which is uh, made in the film uh, all the time, between sort of these cold, brightly lit clinical spaces, mm. which are associated with the Washington Post and um, the Woodward and Bernstein sort of investigation where everything is sort of incredibly brightly lit um, as compared to these sort of like dark, dark noirish sort of spaces where um, the other side of the equation unfolds, yes. whether it's in the most extreme case, the car park where they speak to Deep Throat, which is obviously like a, a, a big noirish spot with the, the sharp expression of shadow. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's just sensational. Um, I mean, for for anyone, you know, why why that looks the way that it looks and why it is so perfect is the cinematographer of all the president's men is Gordon Willis, um, who was lovingly called the Prince of Darkness by his peers, and uh, he shot films like The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, and uh, and was just you know possibly one of the greatest. One one of the greatest, um, if not the greatest, uh, cinematographer who's ever lived, um, and in his resume also has things like Alan Dapercourt's The Parallax View and Annie Hall. Um, yeah, he's he's great. Clute, another Pakula, but yeah, the spectacular guy who could do who could do that stuff. But it's funny, it does look like that um, in that newsroom. Like Washington Post is clinical and it's got those hard lines and it's really beautifully lit. But what's really funny about another Washington film that came out last year, and a stack of people can check it out now, it's on Amazon Prime, is called The Report. And it's Scott Z. Burns' directorial debut, who is a, a, a very talented writer who's worked a lot with Steven Soderbergh um, and has done a stack of films with him, including Contagion and, and, and others, and has recently been writing on No Time to Die, the upcoming um, James Bond film. And I just felt like every building in Washington looks like on the, from the outside, looks like the foam that you would use to make a, a, a recording studio soundproof. Like everything looks like it's made for people to have conversations that people don't want them to have. People yeah. don't want them to hear like outside or in a car park or they're walking past these spaces. They just feel like places that like look like everything in this movie. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Like the, a lot of like those big brutalist federal buildings and things like that. <laughs> yes. and- yeah, um, but the, the the thing I read about this sort of contrast between these noirish spaces associated with sort of the grand conspiracy as compared to like the um, uh, clinical disinfectant of the sort of the Washington Post bright lights <laughs> yes. um, is just like um, the callback to sort of the the journalist movies of the the golden age of Hollywood in the 1940s and the 50s, where they were sort of quite closely interlinked with sort of like the detective stuff, where the journalist was sort of like the enterprising, hard-nosed, uh, fighting from the shadows kind of like dude that was going to come, you know, so like he as a sort of spiritual brethren to sort of your um, hard-boiled detectives and things like that. And then um, this film coming out and sort of flipping the script there and being like, actually, no, being a journalist is in many ways just a, a, a job. You know, they they, they um, play a historic role and they influence history and sort of like the arc of history, but they do it as sort of workers. Um, they're not uh, these as much as Woodward and Bernstein are depicted as two guys sort of running against the grain and sort of 
complementing their own each other in their own way. Like they are guys that go to a job and do the job. They work nine to five largely. You know, they they sit there at McDonald's and and talk about um, you know their job, their work, um, and it's just sort of an interesting. And they uh, smoke relentlessly. They smoke a lot, yeah. <laughs> or at least, sorry, um, Bernstein smokes relentlessly. Woodward doesn't, but yeah, yeah they they're getting up. They're in the grind, and they take. Yeah. They're picking up a Saturday shift, and if you read the book, which we are, you would if you've heard both episodes of the show, you'll hear that each episode of the show is going to begin with some excerpts, not only from all the president's men, but a stack of other great Watergate material that we'll reference in in, in at the at the culmination of every show, and I, I just. I remember there's a beautiful florid description that happens at, at the beginning of all the presidents spend the book where they're talking about Saturday being a great day um, to head down to the office and finish things like finish those things that didn't have an urgent deadline to rework some stuff, to file some things that were overdue. And that's exactly the, the story is that, you see Woodward get the call on a Saturday morning because he seems to have filed everything that he had that week. So he's like relishing a little bit of time in that nine to five space to sleep in and like, no, go down to the courthouse because some guys tried to rob the democratic national headquarters of the Watergate building. And Bernstein's down there, as you would expect a guy who is constantly behind um, seemingly on other stories because he's trying to sniff out something that's bigger and more glamorous is like, that's where his ears are perking out. Like, Oh, what stories? Could I maybe pick up here? So, yeah, the the grind is everything in this movie. Like the you know yeah. them hammering at keyboards, and taking these phone calls, and then having a partner to listen on the other end, or sometimes two people to listen on the other end, describe the phone calls that they're having to make sure that they're fact checked. Um, that stuff is just outstanding. Is that's that's the yeah, stuff totally. that I would imagine you as an editor is like. Apart from oh sorry, apart from having a red pen and being able to put your feet up on a desk, Bradley style, and cross things out liberally on a physical piece of paper, um, I, would I imagine... did. I did see that button, and you know that does give you a bit of a yearning for an older style of doing things, right? <laughs> Where you can just be like, no, no, bad, bad. Uh, um, I mean, obviously, in many ways, it's much better, but um, yeah. Um, listen, Jr. If we ever get to work together, I'm telling you right now. If we ever get to work together in any capacity, I, 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 I'm going to print paper and I want you to have a red pen and I want feet up on the table, maybe in a three-piece suit as well if you've got a three-piece yeah. yeah. sure. three yeah. suit and I want you to cross the living daylights out of it if it needs crossing or tick it and go, run that baby. You know, like that's 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 the stuff that I think this movie, um, that's where people lean into the like, oh yes, it's sort of glamorizing the journalist, but like the grind's there. Like it takes... Yeah. Long time to get it written and copy edited and layered through the different editorial processes before you see it at the big editor because the ramifications of what they're writing is serious. And yeah. so, you know, I think in our country, even more than the United States, libel laws are serious. <laughs> Could, are we, is that yeah, fair no, to say? That's it. Yeah, Australia's defamation law is notoriously strict, um, which... Uh, it come, it's come up quite a lot of late uh, as it's blamed for, for example, why Australia didn't have a particularly vigorous Me Too uh, moment mm. like the US did uh, was largely because um, the defamation laws in Australia are quite uh, strict in favour of the plaintiff. Um, so essentially making it quite difficult uh, unless you're very, very heavily resourced um, to report on powerful people. Um, and obviously, this is a film about reporting on 
you know, the most powerful person in the world, essentially. Yes. Um, so it does have a bit of sort of a bittersweet sort of um, vibe to it there. But um, I think a really interesting contrast to draw as well um, is uh, talking about journalism then and now. Um, if we revisit um, uh, Bob Woodward's book about Donald Trump from last year, Fear, um, now it was a, a – a, a, a solid piece of reporting. It was a, a well put together book. He obviously spoke to a lot of people. A lot um, of sources. That's lot one of sources. thing. One thing you can actually admire, despite whatever we're going to say about it, is like the man still gets some sources. Still, okay. still has some okay. access to get people talking. Um, but the, I guess the, the the point there is that its um, impact has been essentially nil. Yes. Um, and it's it's not just um, Bob Woodward, but uh, huge amount of um, good reporting has been sort of water off a duck's back here. Uh, there's no lasting impact on Trump. Uh, it hasn't really uh, damaged his standing with the base. Obviously, the impeachment stuff is is ongoing and things like that, but there is a sense that we're in, we're in a point of history where this sort of stuff just doesn't really stick. Uh, and it it's not just Trump, but you, you can sort of see it in um, other big stories around the world and things like that. Even like talk, think about stuff like, you know, the Panama Papers, which I think was probably one of the greatest pieces of investigative journalism um, of absolutely basically basically ever. Um, that sort of revealed a titanic scale of wrongdoing, which makes um, quite frankly makes uh, Watergate look like child's play. Yes. Um, yeah, one again, bugging of one national, you know, I think, yeah, you know, when you talk about scale versus yeah. an international conspiracy of uh, of all of these, like, fake corporations to just, like, on top yeah. of fake corporations on top of... And, like, all the richest people in the world. Like, you know, it was all there. Um, and again, that has sort of just uh, proceeded. I mean, now, it, it's not that we don't know these things now. Now everyone... And in many ways, it was sort of just a vindication of what everyone sort of assumed was the truth anyway. Mm. Um, but what is it actually... Um, done uh, very little. It hasn't really had a huge number of political ramifications apart from some of the initial um, some of the initial sort of uh, things that came out of that like the Prime Minister of Iceland had to step down and things like that um, but it hasn't really had any long term uh, impact and people will go oh the Panama Papers, yeah that's right, oh yeah right uh, literally every rich person on the planet is corrupt. Yeah I remember learning about that but then sort of we just, we have what other things to worry it? about. What do you think it is JR? Because yeah, I, I know. like because this is the this might be one of the maddening threads of this podcast as it starts to emerge is that there are things that even you and I in forty minutes of chit chat right now as part of this podcast have said as far as scale and the modern sense of either political or corporate interference and corruption have dwarfed Watergate, which is the seminal moment and like a historical watershed you know, forgive the pun, watershed moment that would say this sort of thing can't, shouldn't happen. Yeah. And yet it continues to happen. And it happens totally. in the most egregious of ways across all the international landscapes. And it's like with, at a fingertip, we all have Google, we all have our phones, we all have this immense amount of knowledge and access to great journalists, such as even yourself now, and the great journalists who've done all these things, and then they're usually the great journalism. You know, I'm 
thinking of Ronan Farrow's work because you mentioned Me yep. Too before. Catch and yep. Kill, that is all documented. Apart from the phenomenal actual reporting itself and the articles, lengthy and extremely well-resourced and well-sourced. Um, you know, they're... All this information is there, but what, what's the apathy? What's the growing apathy uh, yeah. of of a population? Is it just that it's so goddamn pervasively corrupt and shit that we just can't have the second to pause and go, what are the ramifications of this? I mean, I think that's part of it. Um, and things like the Panama Papers and sort of like the Snowden revelations and things like that yes. are so vast in their scale and the things that they talk about are so massively ingrained into like our daily lives and sort of like the structure and functioning of the economy and things like that, that like we can't even begin to comprehend it. I mean, the Nixon, <laughs> yes. the, the Nixon case is, is, uh, is easy by comparison because it's like this is one man who has employed, you know, a group of other men, the White House plumbers, to, to do illegal things. Like, it's it's pretty clear-cut. There's some crimes here <laughs> you can look at and you yeah. can go, that man is guilty, that man is guilty, that man is guilty. They, they were all employed by President Nixon. All right, he's gone. Great. Whereas you look at something like, you know, the vast sort of surveillance apparatus that sort of integrates into literally everything that we do these days. And what, what, do, you, um, what do people do about that? They can't. They're not going to get rid of all their computers and their phones and their Facebook. They're not going to go off the grid. So they just sort of. No one's it's... watched the Born Supremacy enough to truly understand how to go off the grid. I think exactly. we need to learn. There needs to be more a process movie about how one actually goes off the grid. Yeah. But yeah, no. Yeah, you can't. It's impossible. It's paralyzing, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, the yeah, and it's it's interesting to think about that and that like, but. The other aspect of it, I think, um, is just the sort of the breakdown in narrative, right? Yes. The, the idea of a one grand narrative, um, which has proceeded throughout history, this sort of like weak view of history, is like it has collapsed, basically. Yes. And the internet obviously played a massive part in that and sort of like information technology and all that sort of thing. Um, but I think it was sort of like a longer term decline, right? A longer term collapse um, to the point where we could look back pre-internet and be like the seeds of this sort of collapse were, were already sort of well in motion um, by the time that came along. So you can you can look at it on sort of like a micro level, like these conversations around, you know, uh, social media, you, 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 you filter bubbles, right? You know, you follow yes. all the stuff that you like on Facebook. You only see the stuff that you like. It gets reinforced. Um, that was sort of given a sort of outsides importance, I think, after the uh, 2016 election and Brexit and what have you. Um, but I, th I think there's, there's truth there, but it speaks to sort of like a, a broader malaise where it's like a collapse of meaning, um, and the sense that people are in control of their own narratives and they can sort of piece together a worldview from a number of different sources. And now we've gotten to the point where politicians like obviously Trump is the, is a very strong example, but even, you know, Scott Morrison here in Australia, um, who understand that they can sort of weaponize that uh, loss of meaning um, and sort of profit from it politically. Yeah, there's um, this weird thing where if you just go and talk nonsense, like, or meaningless marketing speak, it's like it triggers the same apathy that we have to scroll past an ad. You know, like yeah, we're but... so accustomed to flicking with our thumb to find what yeah. we want to look at. And when you hear the nonsense, 
of people stating like some of the things that, for example, our Prime Minister Scott Morrison says in current in the current climate in Australia. Actually, Australia, as we're recording this, is currently burning. <laughs> it's currently yep. on fire in an unparalleled scale. Um, and our Prime Minister is infamous for having taken a lump of coal to the Australian Parliament to tell people not to be afraid of it because he's such a climate change denier actively. Um, and so he's now starting to talk in language that is clearly written by people who know that his job is on the line, <laughs> yeah, 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 and uh, is saying all these things, and it's such nonsense, and it's so false, and it's so empty that you're just like, if you didn't, if you weren't trying to dig into what he's saying and what the ramifications are, what he's saying, and and trying to find ways to, I don't know, activate activate your infuriation and put that to a good cause, you would just go skip, see ya, yeah, and yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. Mm. But um, sort of like uh, continuing with that point, um, you know, the easiest example to still return to is Donald Trump. And I think that there's, you can actually draw, you could draw more connections, I think, with Trump's election and Nixon's election than probably anything else. They're real massive parallels in sort of like the the two American moments that sort of enabled that. So there's a real sort of like, um, joint narrative between those two. Um, and, you know, obviously uh, the the big story of the past three years has been, you know, Donald Trump doesn't tell the truth. He, he lies a lot. Obviously that's anyone uh, yes. analyzing that objectively will find that to be true. Um, but what they also find is that it doesn't matter. Um, you know, we've spent three years in uh, in the US with Trump and with, in the UK with uh, their stuff around the EU and Brexit and things like that, sort of evaluating the truth value of all these claims, right? Being like, okay, let's fact check everything Trump says. And it's not true. This is not true. This is not true. This is not true. This is, this is the sort of journalism that's been done over the past three years. It's like, here are all the ways that Trump is wrong about X and what he's saying isn't true. And we've sort of, with the, the benefit of hindsight of the past four years, we've come out of it and it's been like, well, has that moved the needle? Not really. Nope. Like, who gives a sh- Like, who has really given a shit at the end of the day? It's no. Very few people's minds have been changed. There might be some people in, in the in sort of the middle there who voted Trump and then have been like, actually, you know what? The guy does tell a lot of lies. But for the majority of his base, it doesn't really matter. No. Um, it conforms. It conforms to this this narrative that they were really happy to buy into. Um, and that's what I'm what I'm talking about when I'm talking about sort of like this this collapse of meaning. Um, and then then sort of Woodward. Um, wades into this and I remember all the press around when fear was coming out they were like it's you know it's Woodward he's Bob Woodward's back and he's doing he's doing Trump he's, he's doing back, Trump like baby. he did yeah he's doing Trump like he did Nixon he's gonna do his journalism magic and we're gonna we're gonna say something and it's sort of threw it out into the ether and um as we I said before it's a, it's a good book it's rigorously sourced he speaks to some good people um, but at and the end of the day but it has that effect though and uh, just to, to reinforce your point has the yeah. same effect as the Mueller findings, which is yeah, exactly. He's he's mad. He's he's complete lunatic. He as in Trump, not Woodward. Sorry sure. to qualify, yeah. but Trump's a complete lunatic who does crazy things and asks crazy things of the people around him. And by the grace of people, just doing seventy percent of what he asks and ignoring the thirty percent that is absolute lunacy. So essentially, doing what the public is doing when they listen to him. 
like ignoring the complete lunacy and sort of taking yep. any of the things that actually uh, resonate in a positive or negative sense with them on a political on, on a political standpoint. Um, by the grace of those people not allowing him to do things that are heinously amoral and illegal, he's still in office. Yeah. And yeah, totally. so the Mueller report's like, yeah, like if he asks to do all these horribly illegal things, but none of them he does by himself. So he asks someone who's a public servant and they go, no, 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 we can't do that. And he goes off at them and screams at them like a lunatic, like who a, a former game show host might do and act like a tough guy, which he's not. And then... Yeah. Then <laughs> that inaction, the beautiful inaction of d- democracy, uh, you know, slow yeses in power um, mean that that's the only reason why he's there. So it's like one of those things where it's like the end of Woodward's book. It's like, yeah, he's a lunatic. He acts like a lunatic and people are doing mad stuff over there and nothing's really eventuated into anything that's a, a huge consequence yet. And yeah. that's the rest is yet to be seen. So it's just sort of those crazy things. And how it matters to us in Australia, it's like you feel like there's a lot of people who were out there a few years ago when Scott Morrison is elected and doesn't care that he's a guy who seemingly is amoral when it comes to political asylum seekers and refugees and is completely in the pockets of big coal and mining interests yep. until the manifestation of like climate change happening in the country and like the worst droughts in history of historical record in weather in the country then turn into a fire disaster that is like burning almost everything that can be burned conceivably in the country to the ground over many months. And people start yep. to go, Actually, you know that stuff, that whole climate change argument that people are just completely ignoring? That's maybe a consequence. It's just one of those things where it's like until it manifests into like an immediate consequence that is no longer able to be ignored, like there's a whole stack of other noise that gets in the way. Like you said, I think you put it so poignantly when you talked about this sort of general malaise of like the bombarding of social media and all these things that are bad that are happening and it's like hard to wrap your head around where, where someone can be responsible. Yep. Yep. It's like the, it's the, the, um, that sort of war cry of the 2010s, I think, is like everything happens so much. It's like there's so, <laughs> that is good. There's, 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 there is kind of like an information overload, um, where stories that, maybe would have occupied the public imagination and been made into movies like all the president's men mm-hmm. um, sort of happen and we go, huh, and then it's gone. And then it's the next thing, right? Uh, we don't really have the time to stew on these things as being of enormous national and international importance. And I think that's also part of kind of, it's like may, maybe if Trump did exactly what Nixon did, and paid a couple of bunch of crooks to break into the um, uh, the DNC. Um, would is it possible that maybe it would be talk show fodder for a couple of days and then sort of vanished into the ether? Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. Yeah, I did it. Like, yeah. it, it's it's impossible to imagine. It's impossible. Yeah. And I think the the only thing that I can say is the hope of this show is that maybe we can, and maybe we will yeah. find out um, over the course of the show. But look. 
I think one of the antidotes for everything happening too much is when you can break something down into manageable, perhaps even minute-sized pieces to examine. And despite going off on many tangents, um, I think this is the perfect way for us to close the curtain on the second minute of all the president's minutes with my great and insightful and uh, and I'm looking forward to uh, a person to, I'm going to buy him a red pen um, as an editor of uh, Business Insider Australia and encourage that people in his office sign up for him to use it um, liberally when he's giving them feedback because it's way more fun uh, J.R. I appreciate Hennessy, it thank you so much for being a part of the show thanks for helping no worries, mate. always a pleasure trying to unwrap how everything happens so much Like the Washington Post coverage of Watergate, this podcast is a result of a collaborative effort. I want to say a special thank you to Holly McBride, our narrator for these opening couple of episodes, my great dance partner for this episode of the series, J.R. Hennessy, a phenomenal tweeter and an even more talented editor at Business Insider Australia. If you check in the uh, commentary below this episode on whatever podcast app you're using, or if you go to oneheatminute.com to the All the President's Minutes section, you'll be able to read some show notes uh, about what we talk about and some links off to JR's stuff, which is excellent. Thank you all for listening. Please subscribe, rate, review. We have an amazing podcast feed here Sundays and Wednesdays for All the President's Minutes. And Fridays for Increment Vice hosted by the amazing Travis Woods narrated by Kat Corbett if you want to reach out to the show it's at ATPM pod on Twitter or if you want to reach me contact me on page 24 of your New York Times put a red flag in your pot plant see you next week When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.